He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. First word that comes to mind is shagging. Bonk. Rooting. <laughs> Procreation. The ins and outs of sex. <laughs> Okay. Uh, oh. Bang. What? Bang. <laughs> it's just called bang. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Kia ora, welcome to Bang. I'm Melody Thomas, and the theme for this episode is Frequently Asked Questions. First up, we're going to look at a couple of questions that have been sent in by you, and in both cases, they're things that we've been asked about more than once. Then we're going to talk to a couple of people who get the same questions over and over again. We're going to get some answers here, so they never have to answer those things ever again. Everyone I talk with here is a real person, so we won't get all the answers, but we are going to get a good feel for their relationships and experiences. And don't forget we're dealing with sensitive topics that aren't suitable for everyone, so listen where you feel comfortable and make sure everyone around you feels comfortable too. Let's hear our first question. In our very first episode of the podcast, we introduced Bang as an exploration into a thing that most of us do, or at least think about, or want to be doing. But what about the people who aren't covered by most of us? The world seems sex-obsessed to me. This is Rosie, and she's asexual. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what that means, let's quickly go over it. Asexuality is a sexual orientation just like heterosexuality or bisexuality, and the simplest way to describe an asexual's orientation is that they do not experience sexual attraction. Statistically, it's estimated about 1% of the population identify as asexual. But because we don't ask about sexuality in the census, not yet anyway, we don't have any New Zealand-specific numbers. And as with all orientations, it's not as clear-cut as the definition that I just gave you. ACEs, that's the umbrella nickname for asexuals, which is probably the coolest way to describe an orientation ever, can be aromantic, so that means having no interest in romantic relationships. But... It's also not uncommon for aces to fall in love, get married and have children, which obviously means that some aces do have sex. Having sex doesn't negate someone's identity as asexual because there's a bunch of reasons an ace might do that. Maybe it's important to their partner, maybe they want kids, or maybe they feel pressure to do this thing that everyone else seems okay with doing. There's more reasons than that. One website I looked at said that when it comes to basically any question that you might have about aces, the answer will be, some do, some don't. So do aces like to hold hands? Some do, some don't. Do aces cuddle? Some do, some don't. So yeah, asexuality can be a bunch of things. Here's Rosie on what it is for her. Probably even started to notice it when I would have been kind of my last year of primary school, so maybe about 12 when you start to get some of that, you know, usual silly, you know, girlfriends and boys kissing girls and girls kissing the boys, and I was just never interested in that whatsoever. I was a bit bemused and was, I didn't really get it. But I thought, oh, I was always younger in the class. I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm young. And then when I really when I got to high school, kind of those, those first couple of years of high school was when it really became apparent to me that I was unlike my peers. But I, I, I didn't know what it was, and it was kind of, is it... I just haven't met the right person or is there something wrong with me or I would always kind of miss the point of some things that would go on. There was always this little bit of obliviousness. There'd be some kind of in-joke or somebody would have been flirting with someone and it would completely pass me by. Yeah, just that feeling of being other. Rosie's 32. She grew up in Ngaroa Wahia before the internet was a big thing and so there wasn't a whole lot of information about sex full stop. 
let alone about asexuality. And what made things more complicated was that Rosie is one of those asexuals where it isn't as clear-cut as never feeling sexual attraction. So she kind of ruled asexuality out. In my mind, asexuality was a complete lack of any interest in sex whatsoever. And that that is not how I am. For me, it's a lack of interest in anything physical, but the fantasy or conceptual element of it is there for me. So that's the bit that made me really struggle to identify. A couple of years ago, Rosie stumbled on an article that mentioned autocorisexuality. This is a subset of asexuality where a person does experience arousal and fantasies, but has no desire to take part in them. It's an emerging term, and more recently people who identify this way have been instead opting for agosexual. I think I'm saying that right, but they mean the same thing. It was just this this moment of revelation going, oh my goodness, that's me. And it was just the sense of, I guess, of relief, of going, oh, it's not something wrong with me, or it's not just me. Um, and I just, it felt like a burden had been lifted off my shoulders. The characteristics they talk about, and I identify with everything on this list, um, can get aroused by sexual content, but not actually want to engage in any sexual activity, masturbate, but are neutral or repulsed by the idea of actual sex with another person fantasize about it but envision people other than themselves or kind of viewing it from from a distance so I would never imagine it through my own eyes ever it would always be a disassociated experience predominantly or entirely fantasize about fictional characters or celebrities not anyone you really anyone in real life that you know which is absolutely true for me the thought of fantasizing about someone I know is just icky to me so the moment you know someone it's like oh no way no, but I can like I can appreciate that that's a good-looking person. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's it. But them with the, you is like no, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, and so this is why I found it because it, it it is unusual, right? It's not a, it's not atypical, obviously. It's fascinating. Um, and so and that's why it took me so long to identify because yeah, I I, I'm not without sexual interest. It's just in a very defined in my head way and certainly not in a physical way with any other human being. So fantasy and arousal are not unfamiliar for Rosie, but the moment that fantasy becomes too real? No, 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 no. But Rosie isn't opposed to romance. The idea of a relationship with another person that is intimate, even if not physically intimate, holds some appeal. I am a hopeless romantic in terms of like my favourite songs are love songs. I love uh, <laughs> romantic movies. I read romantic novels. I love the fantasy and the idea of a romance. So, but the, in terms of a relationship, it's something that I, I guess I ruled out in my head because in my mind, if sex isn't on the table, I don't know how I could make that work for, on the other side, um, unless I found someone else who was also asexual. So I just kind of opted out of even attempting to find a relationship. I guess I've always been a very independent person, so it doesn't bother me being on my own, doing my own thing. I mean, there's obviously times when you're like, oh, it would be good to have someone to help out and when you're sick or tired or stressed and having to do everything for yourself um, or when you're travelling. But you just, you, you get that from your friends and family. Those relationships become very, very important. I imagine as you got to, you know, a certain age that friends and family could have, if you are not dating and not showing, to them not showing an interest in that kind of thing, that there would be a bit of pressure have been put on you. Is that right to assume? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it's funny. Usually when I haven't seen someone for a while, it's one of the first or second things that they ask me. Um, they're all desperately waiting for me to find someone. And I've just developed all my usual ways of kind of brushing it aside and, 
you know, I'm, I'm too busy, I'm independent, I've got my cat, I'm good, or yeah, I can't be bothered with all that. And I just kind of have always just brushed it aside because it's an awkward thing to say, actually, no, I'm asexual and I'm just not interested in going there. I, I, at some point I'll need to have those conversations and maybe this podcast will be the, the, the impetus for that. I might just send a few links out and go, here, stop <laughs> asking the question, here's your answer. Um, so <laughs> I think my worry with talking about it with people that I know is that they won't be able to understand because it's something so different to their human experience. And I've told a couple of people, not people that I'm close with, interestingly, people who are, you know, colleagues and things like that to test the waters. <laughs> and some of the response has been incredibly supportive or just, oh, my goodness, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but you do get a little bit of the, oh, you just haven't met the right guy or, you know, you don't, don't know till you try, that kind of stuff, which is the kind of thing that would have, you know, or, hey, maybe you've got low libido and you need to go to the doctors and get your, your hormone levels checked. The kind of stuff that would have been almost socially acceptable to say to a homosexual person once upon a time. Um, those kinds of things um, come up a little bit. And I guess also for me, because it's not important to me, I don't get what everyone wants to know. Like, mm. why do they care that I'm single? Right. I could, you know, right. th- that's kind of my mind. Like, I don't I think they, they worry that I'm missing out on things. But for me, I, I, I don't want it. So. <laughs> so you're not missing out? No. Rosie just brought up a few questions and comments that she gets quite a bit. You just haven't met the right guy or you don't know until you've tried. And as she points out, a lot of those kinds of things not too long ago would have been acceptable to say to someone who was gay. And one or two things like that aren't going to break someone. But let's just for a second imagine those comments like mosquito bites. A few are annoying, yeah, but dozens or hundreds, the effects can really build up over time. I do get a bit weary of the... The constant questions of, have you met anyone? It'd be so nice if you meet someone one day or that kind of, you know, it's, it's, I'm 32 years old and I'm still single. Maybe get used to it. <laughs> and, and also, I guess, the believe people or, or listen to their experience. Don't immediately jump to advising them why what they're telling you isn't true. So if someone says they're not interested in sex, take them at their word because that's not an easy thing to say to someone. Um, so if you're saying it, then, then they probably mean what they're saying. And if someone identifies it as asexual, then, then take them at their word and, and show interest in, in understanding their perspective. There'll be people listening who hear another term about um, sexuality. You know, there's a lot of labels out there when it comes to gender and sexuality these days, which for people with experiences outside of the quote-unquote norm is really wonderful. But for people outside of that, it's like just another word to learn. Um, <laughs> how, do you, how would you respond to those people who are like, oh, we're getting a bit ridiculous here now with all these sub-branches of sexuality? Well, I would say it would have existed forever. I would be an old maid if it was many years ago, right? I would be the the auntie who never had any kids and lived on her own and did her own thing. Or the witch. Yeah, or the witch. Or, that would be fun. <laughs> that sounds you know, but you know, this this won't be a new condition, right? This would have been around forever, just as homosexuality and all and, and all the other forms of sexuality. They're not they're not new, but they were not openly talked about. It was not socially acceptable to talk about these things or, or there weren't terms for it. Or people felt the pressure to, to conform to the norm and just went along and did it anyway, which I'm so thankful that I, I don't live in an environment where I would feel the, feel pressure to partner up and, and, and have sex and be in a relationship even though it repulsed me.
thank you so much, Rosie, for getting in touch. Last I spoke to her, Rosie had recently opened up with a close friend about her sexuality, and it went really well, which is amazing. We're moving now from someone who doesn't want to have sex in real life, ever, to someone who really, really does. I'm a part-time artist and full-time whatever else there is to do. I live in Melbourne. I've lived here for about a year, and I'm from Wellington, New Zealand. This is Stella. She lives in Melbourne, but her boyfriend, who we're going to call James, lives here in New Zealand. So you're in a relationship now that you've been in for how long? Four years. Four Mm. years. (laughs) Does that feel like a long time for you? Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) Tell tell me a little bit um, about that relationship. Okay, cool. I'm actually in a couple of relationships at the moment. I'm, like, in different capacities seeing four different people. That's right. Stella's here to talk about polyamory. I'm polyamorous, I'm poly, which I would say is like a system of of managing your interpersonal relationships such that you can have more than one romantic relationship at the same time. And p- everyone does it differently, but I do it where the romantic relationships that I have are quite emotionally involved, so it's just like not it's not just about sex, but um there's like lots of different types of relationships that I can have at the same time. I'm actually just terrible at monogamy because when I'm in a relationship, even if I'm happy in that relationship, I still like have crushes on other people. And it is horrific to think that by me having feelings for someone else, I'm doing harm to my current partner. Like if you like adopt the poly philosophies, then that's an idea that you can reject. And I like that. One study in 2013 suggested that in the US, as many as 5% of people are in relationships involving consensual non-monogamy. Now, that term includes swinging, open relationships, and polyamory. And just like asexuality, polyamory can be done a bunch of different ways. So we're going to hear how Stella does it. We we started in in a hierarchical system. Like, some people in polyamory land don't really like this system because you're like, um, prioritizing partners over the other, but it, it works for us. So we have a primary partner, and my primary partner is James, and James's primary partner is me. And uh, we share finances, and we have, like, long-term plans, and we meet each other's parents, and they probably think we're going to get married, but we're not. Um, that sort of thing. The, and, and everyone else is, like, a secondary, and I, I don't really like that term, but basically it's like I wouldn't live with my other partners. I wouldn't share finances with them. Um, yeah. What's the difference between being polyamorous and having an open relationship? Uh, it really depends on how you define it. Yeah. I could comfortably describe myself as both. I reckon mm. they're like both really loose terms. But I, for me, an open relationship maybe um, means that you and your secondary partners have much less of an emotional involvement. Um, maybe an open relationship is one that... You just, like, have festival flings mm. twice a year, but otherwise you're married to your primary or, or something like that. When when um, people in polyamorous relationships inevitably start talking about primary and secondary partners, it does something quite funny for me because, and pro- I imagine for a, a few people, because it sounds kind of like this sexy, exciting thing, and then you get into the nitty-gritty and it's like, oh, gosh, like, <laughs> so much to navigate. Like, who can be bothered? Actually, yeah. <laughs> I have, like, read and, like, talked to people online, like, online forums and stuff where they're like, I actually just couldn't be 
fucked after a while. <laughs> and and like they they just like turned the monopoly board over and they were like, eh, I'm going back to conventional relationship. But like I reckon monogamous relationships are really hard. It's just that in polyamorous ones you talk about it. How does jealousy come into play when it comes to polyamory for you? Uh, all the time, man. Like you're gonna get jealous. Everyone gets jealous. That's just an inevitability. Polyamorous relationships do not like deny the existence of jealousy. You, you have to hold like two somewhat contradictory thoughts at the same time. You have to think that y- your relationship isn't going to be affected if they have a relationship with other people. But um, you also have to both recognize that you're going to have horrible, horrible feelings and like the jealousy. And there are many ways to deal with that. And the best way that I found is um, if you start to feel jealous, then you should ask your other partner for more love and reassurance. And the the reassurance is is really important. Like they need to reassure you that they still love you and that they don't have any plans to leave and that everything's going to be okay. Mm. Um, so you, you just kind of have to build up an extraordinary amount of trust um, through those small micro interactions which are really important. If you're not Polly, then there's a bunch of logistical things you may not ever have thought about. I hadn't. Not until Stella brought them up. So I am on like really hectic hormonal contraception and it's like nigh impossible for me to get pregnant. And and when you're like having sex or, or ideally, um, then you need to be like quite safe and quite conscious about that. So like James and I don't use condoms together, but that's like the only person with whom I do that. And we also have our own like toys that we've bought together and we don't use with anyone else. And then with everyone else, I need to use condoms all the time. And do you monitor your cycle as well and that kind of thing? Or is no, it, but just, I do. The hormones will protect you. The the hormones will protect me, but I also <laughs> take a um, I take a pregnancy test like once every three months. Wow, I'm pretty good at it. Are there any other logistics that we won't know about? Because that's quite fascinating. Uh, in the in the bed, um, like it, when we were living together, me and James decided that like our our room that we shared was quite sacred, so we weren't allowed to invite other people into the bed. Yeah, I, I'm not living with a romantic partner at the moment, so like. Uh, I can invite people into my bed and that's fine. Mm. Um, but I do need to clean the sheets every, like, you know, in between partners. Well, um, yeah, that's it's basic rude. decency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, it ends up with a lot of sheet washing. Oh, I bet. <laughs> the laundry. No one thinks about the laundry. <laughs> As someone who is on the outside looking in on something that a lot of us are deep inside, that being monogamy, what yeah. do you see as the potential failings of monogamy or things that people in monogamous relationships could take from a relationship model like yours? I think that people in monogamous relationships can forget to ask each other for empathy um, and they can forget to ask each other for reassurance and love and affection. I think in polyamorous relationships, it's a really easy dialogue to have, like, uh, hey, I need more support from you right now. I'm not feeling good. Like, oh, okay, I, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. Let me give you more support. That I see 
people in monogamous relationships, there's just this like expectation and like some mind reading expectations going on that um, that I think polyamorous relationships uh, are better suited to like just circumnavigate. On a philosophical level, I don't think that you should be punished for loving people. So if I have a get a crush on someone, like that's not a bad thing. It's it's actually really nice and we should celebrate that. In monogamy, once you've committed to one partner, then any like romantic love that you that you feel for other people is like evil. And I don't like that idea. Thank you so much, Stella. Now, that's not the last we're going to hear on that subject because we've had a lot of people email in to ask when we're going to talk about polyamory and there is still so much more to explore, so keep an ear out for that in future episodes. So earlier, Rosie told us how when she hasn't seen someone in a while, usually one of the first things that they ask is whether she's met someone yet. And I know that lots of you are going to relate to her frustration over that question because you really don't need to be asexual to be constantly quizzed over your relationship status. These are the kinds of frequently asked questions that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that some people feel get asked too much. Now, I know that people don't ask these questions to be cruel, like usually they come from a good place, but that doesn't counter the fact that for the person being asked, it can feel intrusive and sometimes even painful. I haven't had too many of the partnering up interrogations myself, lucky me, but I have had some of the procreation ones. There was a period when my oldest child was about maybe two, when everybody I met, it seemed like, wanted to know when I was going to have another baby or, you know, when we were going to start trying for another one. And, you know, what really hurt about that was that we were trying. And in fact, like in there, in that period, we even miscarried. So anytime somebody asked us about that, all the pain of that loss came flooding back. The point is you just never really know what the person you're talking to has been through or is going through. Our next story comes from a person who, over his life, has fielded a whole lot of well-intentioned questions. My name's Red and I'm 31 and I use a wheelchair. Red lives in Auckland with his wife and two kids. He's a high school teacher and he has cerebral palsy. As he described it to me, he was born that way. So his disability is a lens through which he views the world, just like you view the world through your lens. And just like you, it's far from the only thing that makes him him. But other people aren't as used to his disability as he is, so everywhere he goes he gets comments and questions from curious strangers. Kids often will say, did the wheelchair come out with the baby? Okay, so that question's adorable, that's fine. But a lot of the others can get pretty tiresome. Red knows they come from a good place usually, and that the people who ask or make those comments often don't even realise that they're doing it. We're about to hear a pretty good example of that. My oldest child is three, Lockie, and he rides around on the back of my wheelchair and guaranteed within five minutes of being on my back we'll get someone slinging a, uh, that looks like a good ride, or, oh, you've got the best seat in the house. Like, those are just guarantees. And that's great, you know, because I think people are responding and interacting in a in a, in a p- positive way and in like a, it's almost like they're trying to disarm themselves by commenting on something you know, cool and interesting. As Reed, I've done this. To... I've done this. I've done, done this. It? Yeah, there's a there's like a grandparent who who takes his um grandchild to to my kid's school on the back of his zippy little wheelchair, <laughs> and I've said something about it being 
like a great ride. So why why do you think you wanted to say that? Well, I mean, he was going real fast and it looked real fun <laughs> for the kid. It is a blast. That's where I, like, ostensibly felt like I was coming from. The, the kid's face was full of joy. But don't you think it's a dis- <sighs> don't you think it's like, sorry to take this, like, deep, but don't you think on some level it's a desire to reach out to people who we perceive as, like, different and try and connect with them in a way that's, like, not confrontational? Now, some people yeah, totally. just go... I want to pray for you, or how do you have sex, or how do you live? But, you know, I think most people just want to, um, you know, like, reach out and connect with people. And sometimes if you've got a wheelchair or you've got a kid riding in the back of your wheelchair, you're more of a magnet for those kind of comments than um, most people. How does it make you feel? Because for people saying it, like me, it's like making us feel better by reaching out across the gap. But how does it make you feel? Well, I guess it depends on the context. Like, most of the time, I just politely acknowledge it and get on with my day because I understand that it's more about what they need rather than anything that I need to give them. I think I've stopped putting the pressure on myself to respond to them or to somehow take responsibility for their feelings. I think in the past, I've probably been really keen to, like, put people at ease and make them realise that I'm normal and that, like, look at all the things that I can do and look how, like, actively I'm bucking stereotypes. Um, But I think now I'm just more content to, like, just be and do me. And if they want to remark on something or or chuck in a, you know, a a sly banger, uh, more power to them. Before, when, when you kind of threw out a couple of questions, and one was, how do you have sex? And we can talk about that later. But one was, how do you live? And that's a pretty full-on thing to ask someone. Yeah, I mean, I think people just imagine themselves in my shoes in a very narrow focus. You know, I think they imagine what their life would be in a wheelchair and all the things that they might not be able to do or have to do differently and they would perceive that as a loss, you know, or like a step backwards or like a step down or whatever. Um, But I guess, you know, for people like myself, I've never known any different. So there's no sense of loss or what might have been for me. It just, you simply are. And I suppose I do my best to make sure that people understand that actually I'm really happy and my life's amazing and I'm stoked with how things are turning out, touch wood, so far. And I think... (laughs) Having my kids, like having Lockie on the back of my wheelchair and stuff riding around is kind of a signal in a way to some people that everything's okay, you know, that I've got my son. They're not they're not always sure it's my son. They, so I get some people that check with me um, if he's my son before they, you know, remark upon him, which is fine, but again, kind of illustrates people's low expectations perhaps. But I think in some ways my kids are a symbol and my wife is definitely a symbol uh, that everything's, um, you know, it's not too bad. As you say, you view the world through this lens that is influenced by this a disability you've lived with your whole life. So how has that potentially influenced relationships and sex for you? At high school, I was convinced that no one would ever go out with me and I'd never have a girlfriend and... I don't think I thought about sex. It was just, let's get the first thing in place first, you know, let's get a girlfriend. But (laughs) I think one of the interesting things about growing up with a disability is that unlike other kind of minority groups, like maybe cultural minorities, when you might grow up in a family of that same culture who can like pass down 
wisdoms or maybe even like the queer community where you're more likely to bump into somebody maybe at your school that identifies in the same way and you can kind of support each other through those times. I'm making assumptions, but, you know, when you've got a disability, you're often on your own and you kind of have to figure things out all over again. And so I didn't really have anyone telling me at high school that everything would turn out okay and that actually just because you're not the captain the first 11 read, things are going to get better for you. You know that whole line, like, things will get better? There was no one telling me that at high school. And so I think I very much, like, got quite hysterical (laughs) over my relationship future. And Um, the internet wouldn't have been as much of a thing, those communities. Totally. And actually, in 2002, three, when I was in, like, sixth and seventh form, I sort of discovered the internet. And in a strange kind of way, that was a really supportive environment in which for me to delve into relationships because people didn't know I was in a wheelchair. I definitely didn't tell them. But I found that really freeing because I could try out the the world of relationships without having to actually confront these people face to face. (laughs) And I think if you grew up in the early 2000s like I did on the internet, we all had like online boyfriends and girlfriends, right? We all did that, right? Mm. That was definitely a thing that everyone did. Um, Good, yeah, good. (laughs) But it just, look, it allowed me to realise that actually if these people on the internet like me for my personality, then maybe the wheelchair won't be such a big deal after all. Okay, so what about when it came to um, dealing, like wrestling with those things IRL in real life, face-to-face? Yeah, yeah. I say this as if this is only a problem that affects people in wheelchairs, but I think when we're all growing up, we all wonder whether anyone will ever love us, right? And we all then have this experience where someone does end up liking us and showing us affection. And then you realise that maybe there are other possibilities out there and the doors are not all closed and you won't die alone with 20 cats, you know? And I think that's just what happened to me. Like, eventually, I met... So I actually met someone on the internet and I was with that person for a couple of years. But it was super... You know, it was like a real relief, you know, that actually everything was going to work out. And then there were other relationships after that and things got better and better as I got older, which I think... I wish someone had told me uh, earlier. I may not have believed them, Mm. but I wish, you know, an old dude in a wheelchair had come up to me and chucked his arm around me in high school and said, listen, buddy, (laughs) everything's going to be okay. Okay, so to to what degree do you want to go into the sex stuff, Red? Well, let's see. We let's see. Let's see how we go. <laughs> so let's see how we go. So I imagine, like this is this is part of what's coming into play when people ask you if your son is your son. Yeah, that's kind of what the the question that sits underneath that is. Totally, is like, can you have sex? How do you have totally. sex? How do you father mm-hmm. a child or whatever? So, mm-hmm. um. I just don't want to ask it. Okay, well, why don't I answer it? Okay, thank you. So I think the media has conspired to produce this really narrow kind of aesthetic of what sex looks like. You look at the way that films and TV portray masculinity and men during sex, you know, they're often, like, very active. There's a lot of thrusting going on, a lot of standing up, you know, and a lot of um, sort of Ryan Gosling-style bodies. And I think a lot of us, a lot of men, whether we say so or not out loud, really struggle with <laughs> the reality of our sex lives versus what how we're shown on TV, and I'm no different. What I think is interesting, maybe, is, like, because I use a wheelchair, I knew straight away that my sex life wasn't going to be like Ryan Gosling's, you know? Mm. And so there maybe wasn't as much of a uh, mental hurdle for me to go, get over. It was just like, well, 
there ain't going to be a lot of standing around here. There probably ain't going to be a lot of thrusting either. And so you just adapt, you know. Mm. And I think importantly, you tell yourself that this is wonderful nonetheless. Mm. And I guess something that you would be forced to do that I think a lot of couples wouldn't be and would probably benefit from is a lot of communication and trying stuff out and you know and a lot of problem solving yeah Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely a lot of communication I think we put too much weight sometimes in trying to make sure that our sex looks like it does on the movies or you know potentially even more disastrously porn and but now we just we just figure it out as we go I wish there was a more exciting tale to tell. I wish there were, like, swings and adaptive lifts. You know, I wish there was apparatus <laughs> that I could tell you about. But unfortunately, I think my sex life is not too different to most other people's. It's just, it's clumsy and messy and hilarious and awesome. Thank you so much, Red. What a delightful chat. And there are some assistive devices that some people do use, and we may look at that later on. Okay, it's time for one last set of frequently asked questions with someone who, like Red, is part of a group that gets these kinds of questions all the time. It's definitely a a question, a much-asked question. Um, Yeah, I mean, how do you respond to that, eh? This is Rachel. She's a friend. She's in her 30s. She's married. And she's a lesbian. Just being stupid, just being like, how do lesbians have sex? What makes you go from a hot dog to a taco? (laughs) Because tacos are obviously more delicious than hot dogs. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So, how do lesbians have sex? This is where we're going to start, and it's something that she's been asked a lot and that a lot of her lesbian friends have been asked a lot. It's like, how long's a piece of string? You know, you don't need a penis in order to have sex is basically the answer to that. So, I imagine that lesbian sex is as varied as... There's as many ways to do it as there are lesbians in the world. Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. okay. One of the ideas that really persists about the way lesbians have sex is scissoring. Rachel's about to explain what that is for anyone who doesn't know, but she reckons it's not nearly as common as people have been led to believe. Okay, sure. Some people would scissor, but I've never come across it in my life. I've never been asked if I wanted to do that. I've asked many people because along with that question of how do lesbians have sex, it's often just, so what do you lesbians do? You just scissor, right? You know, yes, it's persistent. <laughs> it persists. Exactly. Um, in case there are people who don't know what scissoring is, can you describe it for us? This <laughs> mythical act. So you really need to see my fingers right now. So basically, for the listeners, put your index finger and middle finger like a peace sign. Put two peace signs, but put the knuckles together. If yeah, and then like slide the middle, them into each other. Slide it yeah. into each other, exactly. And squirm around. <laughs> And you're imagining the fingers are legs. Exactly, with your vaginas, you know, rubbing against each other. Which could feel nice, but also seems to be, it seems quite like it could be awkward. awkward. Yeah, that's where I'm going with that one. I've asked many lesbian friends, like, do you do it? Because, you know, of course it could just be my preference to not. But yeah, lots of them are like, nah. We could do maybe like a little survey on Twitter. Totally, prove me wrong. Okay, I did do a survey on Twitter and drumroll please. With five hours to go, this poll only had about 70 votes on it. So on a whim, I tweeted American sex podcaster and columnist Dan Savage, and he retweeted it to his huge following, and in the end, 1,243 women took part. So it's a bit of a skewed audience, but it is a sizable one. 
Of that sample, 30% agreed that scissoring's not a thing. 42% said it is a thing but not their thing. And 28% said scissoring was a thing they enjoyed. Which is obviously too many to discount. Anyway, not science, but it looks like Rachel was right in the fact that scissoring isn't as much of a thing as a lot of people believe it to be, though as with anything, some people really like it. Side note, you can still do the awesome hand signal. I'm doing it right now. My engineer's doing it right now. Scissoring! Okay, back to Rachel. If she's in a good mood and she likes the person who's asking, how does she answer the question, how do lesbians have sex? I'd say oral sex is, is a big one. Digital sex, which is what my doctor said to me once. She was oh, like, I was so thinking you... like cell phones, but no, that's oh, not I know, right. right? Like with your digits. With your there digits, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So obviously you use your hands for for both, you know, I guess clitor- clitoral stimulation and penetration. And then, you know, a, a myriad of things <laughs> in mm. amongst those combinations. Basically, when I go out on my way to to have sex with someone, I would just ask the person that I'm going to have sex with, what do you like? You know, what do you enjoy? And that's how it happens. And I think that's what it should be and what most people should do is communicate what, what you're into and then, you know, go from there. What about penetration through dildos and strap-ons. Yeah, yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I imagine there's people who hear that and go, well, if you're wearing a strap-on, then why not just use a penis? (laughs) Wow. There are people who say that. Yeah, for sure there is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what can you say to that? You know, for example, say we had a man wearing a strap-on. You know, it wouldn't work because it's not about the thing, it's about the person. So before we did this interview, we chatted a little bit on Messenger and Rachel told me she's not what they call in the business a gold star lesbian. What that means is that she has slept with men in the past. She's going to tell us a bit about coming to terms with her sexuality now, which is an answer to a question of mine. When did she know she was gay? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I knew through all the experiences that I had had with, with the few men that I did that just wasn't happening. It was just like, really? Is, is this it? It doesn't doesn't work for me at all. I mean, like even as a young kid, I was just thinking about this the other day, that, you know, I'm sure I had crushes on my, my mother's friends and things. Like, there was a woman I remember, we called her Princess Caroline, that's the... <laughs> It's the nickname we gave her, me and my sister. But for me personally, it was because I just thought she was the most amazing person ever. And, you know, obviously that was probably my first crush when I was like, you know, five. But you didn't see many examples of women being in love and being together so so it didn't occur to you or...? Yeah, that that might have been it. Yeah, it didn't occur to... I didn't know it was a thing. Like being a lesbian was a thing until later. My coming out story to my mother was I was completely in love with Julia Deans from Fur Patrol. Like, I was just so obsessed with her. Like, I cannot tell you. It was actually after a Fur Patrol concert, and they actually walked out the back of an alleyway, and I said hi to her or something. Like, we had some interaction. I must have been about 14 or 15 and I was a bit drunk and I got home and mum was like tucking me in. You know, I was like, mum, mum, I'm, I'm not straight, mum. And she was like, yeah, I know, you're, you're very intoxicated. And I was like, no, no, I mean sexually, mum, I'm not straight. And she was like, oh, right, yeah. And then she kind of 
went on to the story about she had a lot of lesbian friends and they were in a group that she called the Wrangler Club because they all wore Wrangler jeans. <laughs> and, I like, <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not that kind of lesbian, mum. I'm just like, I'm just, you know, I just like Julia Deans. I just want to marry Julia Deans. <laughs> I mean, it was basically the best. Okay, we've got time for a few more pesky questions. Starting with one that I hope people don't ask so much these days. Who's the man in your relationship? Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, who's the man? Do you yeah. have you ha- have you heard that before? Yep, yep. So you know, generally the progression is how do lesbians have sex? Do you just scissor? Who's the man? <laughs> okay, cool. Okay. That's, so that's generally how the, the conversation flows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's just a really <laughs> stupid question because it's like, well, there is no man. So <laughs> think about that. You know, mm. think about how lesbians would have sex, and then think about. How it actually, you know, happens in a practical sense. So, yeah. Um, also, oh, when people are saying <clears throat> who's the man, when I've heard that question, I've always assumed that men, like, within the relationship, like, who's the dominant one and who makes the decisions and who goes to work all day and comes home and dinner's made for them. But yeah, but you yeah. hear it as, like, who's the man in the bedroom, exactly. who's on top, who's wearing yeah, the yeah, strap yeah. on. Mm. Yeah, so that's, I mean, in the sexual sense, yeah, that's often, like, who's the man in the bed? I guess it's the top or the bottom um, you know, who's the one that's doing the the topping. <laughs> yeah, because that's a thing. And, like, there's a there's another thing called a pillow queen, which is oh, someone... Oh, tell me about topping and pillow queens. Yeah, so pillow queens is basically someone who lies there and takes it, right? So yeah. that, in that case, that'll be the bottom. So, yeah, when, when a lesbian says, you know, she's a pillow queen, that means she just lies there and doesn't do anything. So you're the top. I have a final question for you. Mm-hmm. If there was one piece of advice or something that you th- you think that straight couples could learn from the ways that lesbian couples engage with each other in relationships, what would that be? Basically, ask her what she wants, and whether that's in the bed or you know, I don't know for dinner, <laughs> you know, like mm. just communicate more and, and find out more about what your partner is into. That's pretty much it. Res- respect and communication, I'd say. That's it for this episode. I'm sorry if you were hoping to come to the live show and didn't yet get a ticket because we're all sold out. We might have a couple of comps and if you give me a really good sob story, I will look into it and see what I can do. If you're gutted or if you're in a different city, start a petition. It'll help get future shows to you. Don't forget, every week after Bang goes to air on RNZ National, we're live on nights answering your questions. So if there's anything that you want us to look into, email me at bang at radionz.co.nz or you can record your question using the RNZ Vox Pop app. And then tune in on Wednesday, June 27th at 9.30pm to get some answers. Thank you so much for listening. You could subscribe by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, if you've got a minute, review and rate us. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and engineered by William Saunders, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Listener.